It's Royal Navy time. The role of the Royal Navy is to evacuate the army from the beaches while the RAF provide top cover. I think that, I think that was Montgomery. Um, yeah, I'm sure it was. Joan Penn Powell, RN. He's an orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic surgery is easy surgery done by difficult people. There is a bit, there is a bit about the definition of a general surgeon who uses a sigmoidoscope, but as this is being recorded and going on the internet, I won't finish it. Um, this is going to, this presentation is going to wind up the um, two days very nicely because I happen to know that John was, is going to produce data, ideas, pictures, um, conclusions, um, and probably spaces things pending um, that uh, we need to know about. So come and tell us. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Roberts. Uh, so two hours ago, in the finest traditions of the Parachute Regiment from which he came, comes from, Professor Ryan did an amazing ambush, I'm sure you all noticed. There were two text-heavy slides full of acronyms and details and and quite difficult nuanced concepts, and he said, waving his hand, my Navy colleague will talk about these in some detail later. <laughs> I think at that point I was panicking more then than I was when this photo was taken. The only thing going through my mind at that stage was, I only did this to impress girls. Why the hell didn't I learn to play the guitar? <laughs> um, thank you very much, uh, professors, past professors, pr past presidents, sirs, moms, ladies and gents. Um, thank you very much for the enormous honour to uh, talk to you this afternoon. Uh, I'm standing in for Surgeon Captain Midwinter. Uh, I'd like to reassure you this is a, a family situation that unfortunately prevents him from being here. He is, he is very fit and well himself. Um, I'd like to acknowledge uh, some of the gentlemen um, that have contributed to the material I'm presenting here. Uh, first is uh, Brigadier Tim Hodgetts, who's set up a, a lot of the basis for the work I'll be discussing later. Uh, Surgeon Captain Mark J. Midwinter, obviously. Um, twice, he's that important. I think they're meant to be uh, Ian Sargent, who is the senior surgeon. Um, they work so closely together, you can't tell them apart. The, uh, the senior surgeon at Birmingham at Royal Centre for Defence Medicine. He's been there for the full extent of the war. I think the only military surgeon who has, and um, has shouldered a lot of the burden himself personally. And finally, uh, Josh Wenke, one of our civilian U US uh, colleagues, who's helped a lot with some of the preclinical work. So, this is what I'm hoping to cover. It's quite an ambitious talk. Um, first of all, I'd like to look at um, trauma systems, how we measure them, how we define performance, and, um, and, and, and really mark our homework in public this afternoon with you and look at some of the reasons for uh, the, the performance, good or bad. And then rounding off the, uh, the two days, looking, at, uh, looking forward to the future and um, and the challenges we're going to face, and, and possibly some of the opportunities. And again, as we have done throughout the last 48 hours, is to, to look back and look at how history has, uh, um, has shown us a way toward the future. So starting off with the, the measurement side of things, this is a bit technical and a bit dry, I apologize. So trauma systems are very complicated creatures, and the measurement of them, um, we all think we know a good system when we see it, but actually defining that and measuring that in an objective manner is, is, is devilishly difficult. So starting off with um, historical methods, first of all. Um, 
we all like to, surgeons like to pretend we're cultured people. Um, uh, the cat's already out of the bag, I'm an orthopod, so we know that's a lie, but um, the penultimate um, act of uh, Henry V, he gets handed a sheet of paper that tells him that there were 29 uh, British dead. Um, of course, you only ever hear about the nobility and 10,000 French dead, and that was, we think that's a very antiquated way of looking at things, but actually, if we go forward to the case fatality rate, which is still the method used by our, our US colleagues, um, this is broadly the same thing. It's broadly a list of, of fatalities. We have a denominator, so we look at, the, um, we look at those who, who, who died, and, and, and the denominator for that, uh, for that ratio is all of those who were killed and, and injured, and that gives us a, a, a case fatality rate. This is the same thing that's used to measure the death rate in Ebola. Um, the numbers are crude. They're probably not very robust because they're taken from um, semi-official historical sources. But if we if we plot the uh, CFR, the case fatality rate for um, for the, the last century, this is what we see. Not what we're expecting, really. Um, if we plot it in a bit more detail, just over the last ten years, we see that it's fluctuated quite a lot. Uh, the, the, the main relevant line is the uh, is the line in red here. And we see that it's gone up and down, but there has been a downward trend. I think I look at CFR and I sort of have Prince Harry's incredulous expression on his face. Um, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, I can't believe we're still—I can't believe the Americans are still hanging their hat on it. This was a um, this was the front cover of Journal of Trauma last year. This was their headline piece. They had the the case fatality rate graph for the, the last few years, and they were comparing that with with Vietnam and. Um, and, uh, and, and, and career and saying how, how, how much better care had been. I mean, it's quick and easy, but that's about the only thing that um, is going for it. Um, it does allow us to look with a degree of extremely limited, dubious validity back at historical records. But it's, I mean, it, you don't need to be Tim Hodgetts to, to look at this and, and work out there's massive problems with this as a, as, a, as, a, as a yardstick by which to measure our performance. It all depends on who enters the registry. It all depends on how you define casualty, and that's changed enormously historically. So I'd like to look at a bit more sophisticated uh, technique. This is the new injury severity score. This is an anatomic system. It was developed, interestingly, by the American uh, car insurance um, industry, um, and it basically it, you have a big booklet, and that gives every injury description a score of 1 to 6, uh, 1 being stubbing your toe and 6 being a... Uh, uh, a non-survival injury, and um, you take the three worst scores from this, you cube them and you sum them. Nice and simple, but it does allow you to actually know that you're comparing like with like. So this is a fairly complicated graph, I apologise for this. Um, on the x-axis here, you've got NIS going from zero, which is no injury at all, to 75, which is um, unsurvivable, or what we used to regard as unsurvivable. Going up the y-axis here, you've got the probability of observed survival. Um, nice smooth lines. This, has, this data has been modelled. Okay, it's uh, done by a statistician called uh, Dr. John Bishop at the University of Birmingham. Um, there's all sorts of ways we can measure the validity and the, um, the reliability of the models he's used. And although I don't understand them, they all seem to tell me that it works. So if we, if we look at the, the first curve on the left here, this is 2003. So this was your survival, which obviously drops the more seriously you get injured. And you can see in every subsequent year, the curve moves to the right. So an easier way of understanding, if we look at the equipoise point for survival, so 0.5, you've got a 50-50 chance of, uh, 
of, of dying with a given injury. If we look at that, where that line bisects, okay, and we take that over, we can see that in 2003, 2003 it's just over 30. And in every year, it gets higher and higher and higher until we're looking at about 68. So we're, we're pushing to unsurvivable injuries being 50-50 equipoise for survivability. And that really is extraordinary. And that's been a sustained, steady improvement over the, uh, over the 10 years. So this is more sophisticated. It's robust. It's a system that's been around for 30 years. It's used in every single major civilian trauma registry across the world. And I think we can reliably demonstrate that there's been a, um, a, 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 an improving performance of the defense medical system, the defense medical services trauma system. Um, there should be fewer confounders. And um, the only thing we need to be clear on is is anatomic only. Um, so it doesn't account for the fact we're dealing with a, um, a physiologically very robust population. And um, it, it's probably not fair to compare our results on this alone with a civilian trauma system that has to deal with all ranges of, uh, of, of, of ages. So finally, we come to TRIS. This is a uh, more sophisticated system. Again, it's based on the injury severity score combines anatomic variables to physiological variables, um, and it came along uh, about a decade after, uh, after NIST. So if we look at the same type of graph, same model data, so TRIS is a uh, zero to 100, and that should be the probability of survival, um, but the actual observed survivability is on the y-axis here. And we can see that although there's been a steady improvement, there's something strange happening around in the last few years. So again, if we use this equipoise point and we plot that, we get this graph here, which is interesting. This seems to show that although there has been a marked improvement overall over the last 10 years of, of, uh, of the conflicts and over this study period, there does seem to be a slight tailing off over the last two years. In 2009, it got to the point where TRIS as a system was completely broken for us. There was no TRIS score that predicted survival in our patient population, which is a phenomenal achievement. But it has tailed off a little bit in the last couple of years of this analysis. The advantage of TRIS, as I said, it's, um, it's, it's probably the most sophisticated tool that's widely used for measuring um, trauma system performance. The slightly awkward thing is, when I dug into this, it turns out we we're using um, the formulas that rely on coefficients from the original 1987 paper, as are the Americans in their, um, in their trauma registry as well. Um, and the other awkward thing is, is this was devised using civilian data, and um, that forces you to divide things up into blunt and penetrating. Um, and none of us are really clear or want to know where the trauma nurse coordinators place blast injury. Do they... Do they toss a coin, do they look at them and say there's more penetrating? That's a, a bit of an unknown quantity that one of those ones we're quietly putting into the too difficult to think about box. We're at the moment going retrospectively back to our registry to calculate new coefficients so we can develop a, um, a value for blast trauma which will allow us much more meaningful analysis in the future. But that's where things stand at the moment. Um, bit of a whistle stop through a fairly complicated subject, I think we conclude that CFR should be consigned to the history books. We should not be talking about that as a measure of, uh, of, of performance. Um, survival in hospital, variations on those themes, they're just 
partly because uh, we're, they're a victim of our own success. We're now too good to rely on these measures. If you're talking about survival improvements once patients reach hospital in the high 90s, it's no longer a useful tool. We need to develop more robust tools because survival is so good. TRIS um, is probably the one we need to use, but we need to improve the coefficients. Um, but this is indeed, if we want to compare between ourselves and the Americans now, this is the most useful, useful system. We think the reason things tailed off possibly over the last two years of this study was um, case volume dropped. If you're in a situation in 2009, then you're getting three or four cases a week that are right at the very limit of survival. I mean, right at the limit. They come in and they've arrested on the helicopter because of loss of blood. Those sorts of cases are the ones we're now, that, that's where the game is. Anything less than that, we, we, we've got that problem solved. We can fix that. So we're talking about guys that come in arresting. That's what we're looking at. And if you want to save those guys, you, you need to be seeing them twice, three times a week. That's the only way to, to be able to do it. So I think the, the slight tail off is that we've just had fewer casualties coming through the system, which is one of those good problems. So why? Why has, what have we done to, uh, to generate this performance? Well, it, it hasn't been an accident. Without a doubt, over time, things would have got better. We would have got more skilled. By the time we went out to Afghanistan and Iraq for our second, third tours, we would have just been better. Um, but it hasn't been an accident. It's been a very deliberate process. And I think Brigadier Hodgetts um, should probably take an awful lot of the credit for that. So after the Balkan conflicts, he set up the trauma registry. Or during the Balkan conflicts, he set up the, um, the embryonic trauma registry. And uh, uh, by the time the Iraq-Afghanistan adventures happened, he was, um, this was ready to go. Um, so the, the registry collects all data on all casualties um, that then allows us to audit our results, to actually look at things objectively, spot patterns, spot deficiencies in training and equipment, and, um, and that gets fed into the hospex. We've already heard about this. This is the pre-deployment exercise that happens in York. So the entire incoming hospital trains together, and the, over the last few years we've worked with the Americans. So the Americans have flown over. They've deployed to, to, to York before they deployed to Afghanistan. Um, and they, um, they spend a week with us and they train through all these scenarios. They're trained by the surgical teams that have just come back out from Afghanistan. So that closed feedback loop of saying, this is what we found worked. These are the things we developed. This is what we were told when we were in your position six months ago, and this is what worked for us as well. And um, that happens as part of the, the most course here, which is the surgical teams. And I mean, when I say, I mean, surgical teams meaning surgeons, anaesthetists, and um, operating department technicians as well working together upstairs. This is a, uh, a unique, as far as I'm aware, collaboration between the, the Royal College and the Defence Medical Service, and we are incredibly grateful for the support we get in the, um, the state-of-the-art facilities upstairs. And again, we're being trained here on cadaveric, cadaveric material by returning surgeons who've just come back from Afghanistan. The other thing that we do um, to ensure that we get as good as we can as quickly as we can is once a week, every Thursday morning, there is a um, telephone conference between um, Birmingham, Queen Elizabeth Hospital, the Iraq and Afghanistan, the deployed surgeons there, uh, Headley Court, um, and uh, the RAF Seacast um, team, the, the, guy, the flying out intensive cares. We'd have a, a tele telephone conference where we discuss the issues of that week. We discuss what happened to the cases. This was minuted. If there are any persistent problems that were coming up again and again, that was fed back into training. 
So this is a phenomenal learning machine that just is, is focused on getting better as quickly as it can. So looking at what that means in practice, I, I thought we are in a, in a period of reflection. So I'd like to, um, to look back at one of my predecessors. Uh, McBean Ross uh, was a, uh, a young doctor who, who joined up in August 1914. He was um, appointed as a medical officer to the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Marine Light Infantry, and he was sent to um, help defend Belgium. Um, he then got pulled out, sent to Gallipoli, um, fought in uh, Passchendaele, Ankara, the Somme, um, and, um, and only left his unit in, um, in 1917, uh, not that long after this photo was taken when he was wounded for the second time. This photograph was taken of him um, sh with his brother officers from the unit a um, couple of days before the second battle of Passchendaele, where he was awarded the second bar to his uh, military cross, um, just for comparison. These are all for showing up um, roughly on time and moderately sober for a couple of wars. And I've been mentioned in dispatches a total of zero times as opposed to McBean Ross's uh, three. That gives you a bit of, bit of comparison. Um, he wrote a very good article in the Journal of the Royal Naval Medical Service at the time detailing some of his experiences, and it really is an incredible read. Um, we republished uh, some of the key articles from the First World War in the last month's edition of the Journal of the Royal Naval Medical Service, and we're putting that online because it really is an incredible, an incredible, um, uh, incredible exercise to read some of the accounts and see how little has changed. Um, so, looking at what McBean Ross took into attack, um, my own kit for an attack consists of a Wildly's hypodermic syringe, a bottle of morphia solution, two water bottles, one full of brandy, the other of water. I have a sack containing shell dressings, tourniquets, and a few instruments, and an abundant supply of cigarettes. So in 2006, when I was appointed to 30 Commando Royal Marines, I carried a small, that's not a handbag, that's a man bag. Let's be very clear about that. And uh, I did have a day sack as well uh, when we were patrolling on foot, but essentially I carried the same thing. I had a few advantages. Um, I didn't have to use one syringe for all the men. And the Wildy syringe had a couple of needles to it, and you had to sharpen them every, every now and again because they got blunt being passed through so many arms. Um, we also kept him in antibiotics, crucially. But essentially, out on the ground in 2006, I could render the same level of care that McBean Ross could with his Royal Marine Battalion 100 years previously. And that's not hyperbole for this talk. And look at the great juxtaposition. I'm, I'm confident that's accurate. I also carried some scotch for personal use, but not, uh, never gave it to any of the injured men. It's two things that made a dramatic difference, two liquids that are available today that weren't available back then and have been game changers. The first of them is aircraft turbine fuel, which you put in the helicopters. The second of them is blood, which you put in the patients. The helicopters, a game changer. Um, we've spoken a little bit about the medical emergency response team. Um, this is, in essence, a resus bay of a modern major trauma center, A&E department, placed in the back of an airframe. Um, that's an oversimplification, but it's, 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 it's the best way to understand it. It's a consultant-led resus team, um, either a consultant anesthetist or emergency physician, typically, and they take hospital procedures to the patient. So intubations, um, blood transfusions, uh, surgical airways, thoracostomies, um, intraosseous access, the things that we know save lives and they, and they get them to the patient and then they can perform this sort of initial resuscitation at 150 miles an hour 
doing evasive maneuvers, flying back. Everything Pro Professor Ryan said about the difficulties of performing um, uh, treatments in the, in the back of a Chinook is definitely valid. Um, you know, if you, if you buy these guys enough drinks, they will tell stories about difficulties they've had. But at the same time, it's, um, they're normally able to coordinate things with the pilots and they can, um, they can get periods of calm whilst they can perform certain maneuvers or they even do things on the ground quickly before they get airborne. This is what it looks like in the back. Um, let's talk through this briefly. I quite like this slide and I like it even more now. The only uh, Air Force officer that I knew was going to be here has called in sick. Um, it allows me to be a little bit rude about our, our, our friends in light blue. So we've got a five-man team working on a casualty here with um, bilateral lower limb amputee, uh, amputation. Um, everyone's working hard. You've got no idea which service these guys are in. You've got no idea what spe specialities they're from. Um, but what I do love is you know that the RAF door gunner isn't looking where he should be. He's gawking at what's going on in the back of the cab, not watching his arcs. Um, if we look through the, uh, the course of events, he's got this guy being intubated en route. He's got defib paddles on, so even I as an orthopod know that normally isn't a very good sign. Um, and um, you've got the, uh, the other members of the team um, securing the, uh, the amputation stumps with bandages. This slide here, intubation's clearly been successful. You've got the ventilator hooked up. He's also got, it's very hard to see, but if you look here, he's got what's called a, um, a fast intraosseous device. That's a spring-loaded set of needles that um, fires into the sternum, gets you access to the bone marrow, and when someone's so shut down that you can't get venous access easily, and that is very difficult in the back of a moving aircraft, the fast is just point and press, um, and that then probably, I'm not an expert in pre-hospital care, that's probably plasma going in there. So he's already started to get his first blood products, 150 miles an hour over the Afghan desert. Um, moving on, the blood. Again, the, we, we know this is a game changer, and that's going in en route, on flight. He's packaged up, he's delivered. The most seriously injured guys, this is, we, we sort of say this to wind up our emergency department colleagues. This is a flying ED. The most seriously injured guys go straight through to theatre. Because there's, there's an anaesthetist or an emergency physician consultant who can make that decision, and as they come off, they, if, it's their call. They know the patient. They can take them straight through to the CT, or if necessary, an extremist, straight through to the theatre. Because we've really we've pushed out the emergency department to, uh, to the patient. Now, someone said earlier today, and I think they probably misspoke, but they said that we rely on the Americans for our uh, casualty evacuation. Well, MER is 100% British asset um, and controlled and directed by us. The Americans have stuck to a, a, a the dust-off model, um, and that under certain circumstances that has advantages, and certain circumstances will send a dust-off um, asset to pick up British casualties. Um, a dust-off is a, um, or Pedro is the other, the other version, is a typically more heavily armoured Black Hawk or Black Hawk variant. Um, it's a smaller aircraft, it's faster, um, it tends to be um, armoured in both senses, so it can, can fight back as well as um, take quite a pounding in the air. Um, but the caveat with that, you can take less kit and you can take less people. So Pedro is the, um, the highest level American asset at the moment, and that carries two um, U.S. Air Force Special Force uh, paramedics who are extremely professional, um, but they can't do what a consultant, anaesthetist, or emergency physician can do, and they certainly can't do that in air. Um, so if you, this article was done by, um, by Surgeon Captain Mark Midwinter with uh, Johnny Morrison, who's uh, 
quite a good friend of this college as well. And um, they worked very diplomatically and very carefully with their American colleagues and compared the results with these two airframes for evacuating casualties. So just talking through this graph here, the, uh, the least seriously injured people over on the left, there is no difference in survival. The most seriously injured people on the right, there is similarly no, no difference in survival between the two airframes. In the central group, which is the group we're, we're really fighting for anyway, um, I can't remember what the acronyms mean, but let's just say uh, British down here, less mortality. This is the American airframe here, significant, um, significant high rate of mortality. There are times when a Pedro or Dusseldorf unit can go in and get people where a Merck can't. So it's not a question of one's right and one's wrong. They're different, and, and maybe having both, um, both options in the future would still be appropriate, but it's, that's quite interesting. So gets back to, uh, get back to the Camp Bastion or the surgical facility, and as, um, as uh, Professor Ryan talked about, we get into a damage control, resuscitation, surgery. You can't tease them apart anymore. The days where people were resuscitated in the ED and then taken to theatre for the surgery, that just doesn't happen. It's a, it's a concurrent, ongoing process, and the two merge in together. Re on the resuscitation, and then I've obviously got a slide where I've divided them into two. Brilliant. Um, on the resuscitation side, this is a team effort. Resuscitation isn't one consultant acting as team leader and a few other people running around. It's normally, for the, for the badly injured guys, two to three consultants doing the resus. Um, assisted by often a couple of ODPs and a dedicated person whose job is to load blood into the transfuser. That's how many people it takes. Um, an awful lot has been said, spoken and written about uh, massive transfusion protocols and, and high ratio products. We all know that we use patients bleed whole blood. It's often difficult for us to give them whole blood, but we have to reconstitute that from its constituents. We don't just give packed red cells anymore. It has to be plasma and platelets as well. This is the, um, the Belmont transfuser. That's basically, again, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I apologize. This is a sterile bucket into which blood is, is, uh, is poured. Uh, it gets called pink juice because it looks pink. Um, it then gets pumped in a litre a minute, which is really incredible. But if you're talking about patients that need 150, 200 units of blood in the first 24 hours, you need to be getting it in pretty quick. On the surgery side, again, this is a team sport. The, um, the, it's classic, it started off as surgeons hunt in pairs. We're now looking at really three-person three, three teams for this. Uh, you have a general stroke vascular surgeon, um, and they really are the, uh, the lifesavers. They stop the bleeding, and they um, divert the gross contamination. The orthopods and the plastics stabilize fractures, fasciotomies, and, and start the um, decontaminating the bride in the wounds. So I apologize, we have a mixed audience. You can't really talk about war surgery without um, talking about war surgery. Um, it is hard to exaggerate the level of contamination in, in wounds with improvised explosive devices, much more so um, when they're victim-initiated devices partially buried under the ground. Even the explosive form projectiles we saw in Iraq and mortars, rockets, indirect fire weapons, the, the level of contamination is, is, is just doesn't approach this. Um, obviously, you get huge amounts of tissue destruction and loss, and then the apex of the blast forces... Um, forces debris, dirt, filth, clothing, equipment, belt buckles, eyelets from boots, um, stones, foliage, everything, up into tissue planes, and um, the apex of the wound is often actually in the abdomen. It goes up into the pelvis, and um, these really are extraordinarily um, difficult wounds to decontaminate. Um, 
the treatment is as it's always been. It's, 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 it's surgical, it's surgical debridement. It's excision of non-viable necrotic tissue. It's cutting out and washing out with low pressure saline all the, um, the gross contamination as best as you can, accepting that this is an imperfect process and will need to be repeated. In the meantime, we use topical negative pressure therapy. Um, we, we certainly don't regard it as a substitute for debridement, excision and irrigation, but um, when the tissue loss is this extensive, it is often the only way to manage patients. Um, you know, you've got colossal amounts of exposed tissue here and uh, wrapping someone up in topical negative pressure, seal the wound. The smell itself is very distressing to patients if they're conscious and this seals the wound and allows them to be actually nursed and managed. And it also provides a degree of rigidity with the vacuum and it actually is, is, is a pain relieving measure as well for patients. So this is what we all want to talk about, isn't it? Bony fixation, the highlight. Um, this is a typical wound that's come back to Birmingham. It's already been cleaned very thoroughly back um, downrange in Afghanistan. And this is often what we see when we, uh, when we unwrap them. So we've got a, a fairly healthy, clean looking wound. We know it's not completely healthy and clean, but we're faced with a reconstruction dilemma now. So this is the x-ray. And, and, and we can see really that there's significant bony damage, lots of comminution and a fairly unhappy looking limb. Um, we do know that not that long ago, this would just be cut off. This would just be an unsalvageable injury and this would just be amputated. And the question of whether or not it's still right to salvage limbs and who does better long term is an extremely difficult and thorny issue. But open tibia fractures, we no longer regard as limb salvage. They're, they're just limbs we can fix. The, uh, this is a problem that has been solved over the last 10 years. This, this grade 3B open tibia fracture is not a limb that needs to be salvaged. It's just one that's going to be okay. So this is what we do. It gets an intermedullary nail, invented obviously by um, Kunscher, a, a German military surgeon. And uh, when American and British POWs, typically airmen, were evacuated back to the UK in 1945, some of them came under Reginald Jones, an eminent orthopedi orthopedic surgeon at the time, who tried to get Kuncher tried for uh, crimes against humanity, for his human experimentation, by putting these ghastly devices into patients. Um, luckily, Kuncher was able to demonstrate he'd done an awful lot to his own men as well, who seemed to be doing very well, much better than uh, the guys we treated with six months in traction, actually. But um, anyway, so that's what it looks like. The nail's gone in. Um, we know it's gone in because, unfortunately, we can still see it, which... Normally, obviously, the orthopods would be leaving the theatre at this time and patting each other on the back, but I think there's still some work that needs to be done. So the plastic surgeons come in, and uh, this was performed by um, uh, Wing Commander Everard, who's retired, and uh, Colonel Tanya Kubitsum. Uh, this is a free tissue transfer. I think it's a semi-tenderness flap, which they've then covered with split-skin graft, and back to theatre again subsequently for a completion of split-skin graft, and that's taken. So... That's the normal process for a salvage limb. Um, this is one that, where that hasn't worked. Um, so this is an infected non-union of a tibial fracture, open tibial fracture that's been nailed, and um, the infection hasn't been cleared out. It's taken hold again, and unfortunately, it's gone into non-union. So Graham Groom, um, I suspect a contemporary of Professor Ryan's from his airborne days, uh, works down the road at King's Hospital. He's our sort of go-to chap for difficult cases. And this was one that he managed. So this is his planning operation. Um, his plan for uh, treating this chap was to remove the nail, 
any metal work in an affected limb is, is, in, is infected. It's covered in bacteria that's uh, adhered to it. So he takes the nail out. He also excises a section of bone here. So that's his plan. So rather than give this guy one normal shoe and one stiletto for the rest of his life, he's decided he's got to bridge that, um, bridge that gap, get the bone back out to length. And he does this using Elizaroff uh, osteo distraction technique. And so he makes a corticotomy up here and puts one of these on. And um, that's fantastic, isn't it? That's an orthopedic surgical uh, pinnacle, that is. Um, and this is a, um, a hexapod frame, a telospatial frame. And uh, this, after two weeks, the fracture that, um, that Graham's created is stretched. And you can't see it very clearly here, but there's new bone being formed here as constantly the central section is being dragged down to meet the other end. And this is now healthy bone because all the infected bone's been removed and sawn out. And after time, new bone consolidates there and new bone consolidates there. And all the time, this patient's weight-bearing on this leg, normal weight-bearing, walking around. The other leg by this stage normally looks pretty scarred up and scratched because he's constantly been hitting it every time he rolls over in bed, but he's kept his leg. So again, we've, um, we've kind of got one of those good problems now. We know that at the moment, we've never been as good as we are now. We know that we are sharper and better and swifter than we've ever been in the, in, in, in the past. But that brings a problem that we know that we're not going to be that good again. But this is where we are now. We've been static in Bastion for years. We've had a hard, a hard standing. We're not in tents anymore. We haven't been in tents since about 2007, I think. So we're in a purpose-built, hard-standing facility that's been humming, perfectly tuned over a long time, tiny, tiny improvements, making it as good as it possibly can be. So we're right up here with as good as we can be in this, um, in this uh, continuum. Next time we go out the door, we probably won't be going to somewhere where we can support ourselves with a big medical footprint like we have done for the last 10 years. Inevitably, for contingency, unplanned operations, rapid reaction type stuff, we're going to be back in tents and we will not be able to perform up here. We're probably going to be okay. We're probably going to be satisfactory. We, we'd like to think we'd be still able to provide NHS levels of care, but there is always a danger that things could slip back. And obviously, the focus now, everyone's focus in the DMS is, is, is pushing us to the right as much as possible, maintaining that ability, maintaining the techniques. Um, and this is the, uh, the million-dollar question. Um, I was tempted to go into great detail talking about some of the uh, future research, the um, preclinical research that's going on. There is an awful lot going on in Port and Down, in Birmingham, at the uh, Imperial Centre for Blast Studies. Um, but we all know the problem with, with preclinical research is most of it doesn't end up working in the clinical environment. So I could spend 10 years giving you acronyms of different trials and listing all the different PhDs that are going on for this stuff. And actually, most of it will never make it into service. So um, at the end, I'd like to come back and talk a little bit about a, a sort of scientific reevaluation, learning lessons from the past. Um, but I think it's also important to, uh, to dwell on why um, this has come out really well. Um, continuous innovation is essential to prevent the cyclical stagnation that reoccurs throughout history repeatedly 
and represents an intellectual deficit that ends up costing young men's lives at the start of every major campaign. That's a quote from uh, Brigadier Tim Hodgetts, the current uh, Joint Medical Command Medical Director. And that's what it's about. We are, we are letting ourselves down. We're letting the, um, the young men that look to us to, uh, to look after them when they get injured down. And we must recognize this. And we must limit it, mitigate it from happening this time. So learning from the past. I've heard there was a bit, bit of chat about uh, wound irrigation uh, yesterday. So I thought I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about this and look at, as a subject of things that, um, things that have been learned in the past and continue to be relearned. So back in the day when you could use expressions like and so forth in uh, your title of your manuscript that you submit to the Lancet, um, Joseph Lister in 1867 described his uh, technique for treating open fractures. We remember Joseph Lister as the father of antiseptic surgery, but actually he was, he was concerned about treating the problem with open fractures, which obviously at that stage almost inevitably led to amputation, death, or a chronic uh, osteomyelitic nonunion. And as we know, he described um, swilling uh, carbolic acid around into the wound, various different forms of wound dressings using carbolic acid. And I think people focused at the time far more on putting disinfectants in wounds than they did the fact that there was quite a lot of that carbolic acid ending up in surgeons' hands, instruments, and, uh, and, and even clothing. The, at the start of the First World War, um, the, the real world-leading center for microbiological research was... Um, was just down the road at St. Mary's. It was led by um, St. Almoth Wright, St. Almoth Wright, as uh, yeah, I'm sure he quite liked that, Sir Almoth Wright. And um, one of his new colleagues uh, joined the lab, uh, I think only in 1910, was a um, quite a shy Scottish, recently qualified microbiologist called Alexander Fleming. Um, at the start of the war, uh, Alexander Fleming sought to, uh, uh, to join up, and um, 1914, as, as, as today, uh, there's a very high standard for uh, naval medical officers in terms of both attractiveness and uh, intellectual ability. And, and sadly, Alexander Fleming had to make do with a uh, commission in the uh, Royal Army Medical Corps. Obviously, the RAF wasn't around at that time. Um, now, the St. Mary's lab was moved wholesale to, uh, to I think, number 13 uh, Field Hospital in Belgium. And... Um, this really presented a, a, an extraordinary mind like Fleming's with an incredible opportunity. Basically, nature had provided him with a grim natural experiment of thousands of wounds at various stages of colonization, contamination, and infection. So he would go around taking thousands of samples over, over the course of the war from, um, from injured men's wounds, and indeed actual corpses uh, as well, and noting, noting very carefully what treatment they'd had in the past. And... Um, at the age of uh, 38, as a non-surgeon, he was invited to come to this building and give the 1919 Hunterian Lecture, which was an incredible honor. And, um, and he stood up and explained very, very clearly that disinfectants in wounds made, made no difference, made no improvement at all. And he advised using only saline to wash out wounds. Um, and he brilliantly suggests that it's... Uh, necessary in the estimation of the value of an antiseptic to study its effect on the tissues more than its effect on the bacteria. Um, I don't know if Fleming ever went on to do anything else in his life or made any great achievements, <laughs> probably just faded away, but um, I'm certainly very grateful for, to him for the, for the way he approached this problem. And interestingly, 
this was a paper done in 2008. This was set in, centered, centered in North America, but I promise you the, um, if you did the same thing here, you'd get similar results. So nearly 1,000 orthopedic surgeons with a declared interest in trauma were asked about their opinions on irrigating open fracture wounds and what they used. And nearly half of them thought that saline was inferior to a variety of disinfectants. And I'm sure everyone in this room has seen hydrogen peroxides, iodine solutions, chlorhexidine solutions being poured into, uh, into wounds. Um, interestingly, going back, uh, looking through the literature, um, every single study since Fleming has, has, has demonstrated no, certainly no benefit over saline. And often a lot of these studies demonstrate an increase in infection rates. Um, the only one that hadn't been tried, as far as we were aware, was uh, chlorhexidine. We couldn't find a trial um, where people had looked at that. So together with some, some of my American colleagues and a lot of their money, uh, we proved that Fleming was right. Um, that, again, chlorhexidine wasn't superior in reducing infection at all. So why is that? This is our, our open wound that we met earlier. Nice, clean, healthy looking. But we know that there's probably tissue in there which is necrotic. You know, to the macroscopically to our eye, we can't see it. But representing the same injury um, uh, schematically, um, I'd like to go back to uh, the Jackson uh, wound model. Uh, Jackson was a, a burn surgeon, actually, from uh, worked in the Birmingham Accident Hospital. And he published this in 1953. Again, I'm nostalgic for the days where you could uh, do drawings on your own in felt-tip pen and get them published in the British Journal of Surgery. But uh, he divided wounds into, into three zones. So we've got, and again, I'll mark them on, the, uh, on this diagram here. So we've got the, the zone of necrosis. This is dead tissue. This is Monty, Monty Python dead parrot sketch stuff. It's dead. It's always dead. It is an ex-parrot. So there's nothing we can do to save this tissue here at all. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got reddened, slightly unhappy-looking tissue, but actually it's going to survive. It's robust. No matter what, um, what we do to it, it's going to be okay. It's going to heal up. In between that, we've got the zone of stasis. And I think a more useful way to think about this is, uh, is, is vulnerable but viable tissue, which potentially, potentially can survive and recover, but is vulnerable to further surgical insult. And what happens is when we get these wounds, we, we, we cut out the necrotic tissue, we cut out the tissue that's obviously dead, and we leave the zone of stasis, we leave the zone of hyperemia, um, because that's viable, that's alive, that contracts, that's, that bleeds. Um, if you then pour in a lot of disinfectant, um, you then push that zone of stasis, that vulnerable but viable tissue, you kill it off. You probably kill off 95 plus percent of the bacteria in the wound as well, because disinfectants do kill bacteria, but they also kill eukaryotic mammalian tissue as well. So you've then got a situation where you've got 5% of the bacteria you, you had at the beginning, but you've also created a new layer of necrotic damaged tissue, which is basically growth media for bacteria, and then you wrap the wound up. So this is speculation. This is felt-it pen diagram. But looking at this study here, so this is a uh, quite a complicated large animal model of an, uh, an infected or contaminated open fracture, and they use the staph aureus that have been genetically programmed to glow. So you can then measure how much it glows, the brightness of the glow, to give a, a quantification of the amount of bacteria in the wound. So if you in, in infect these poor goats and then irrigate them with a variety of solutions and come back and take a photograph of them with a proton camera, you can see that the worst performing is saline. 
And then all you go down to the type of Castile soap and uh, Bactrocin and the disinfectant here. And saline is the worst, the worst performance. So immediately after irrigation, you take a photo and there's more bacteria left in the wound in the saline group. You come back in 48 hours and there is a rebound growth and there is more bacteria in every other, in every other group apart from the saline group. So that, again, this is supporting, there is no such thing as proof here, uh, this is supporting this idea that um, you're, you're, you're damaging already damaged, vulnerable, but potentially viable tissue when you put disinfectants in. And this is a lesson that we have learned in every single conflict since the First World War. So this is an example, rather than look forward, this is an example of when we're not looking back hard enough and we have to relearn these lessons from war. And uh, I think the, the theme of this evening is that we need to, be, we need to make sure that we don't, uh, the theme of today rather, is that we need to make sure we, we forget as few as these lessons as possible. Because the one reoccurring thing from every conflict is, I'm afraid, very sadly, we do forget the lessons. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I think I need to clear up once and for all the, the business about which is the best fluid for resuscitation, and it's aviation fuel. <laughs> Questions, comments? Mike, microphone, please. Chris. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Sorry to drag you as an orthopod into a slightly different area, but you talked about the care of the casualties at the field hospitals, and it, we can see how that helps to package them for the long flight home. But I wonder whether you could just say anything on your observation of your colleagues' work in terms of analgesia, and particularly perhaps things like regional anesthesia to help support that casualty on the way back, because there's no doubt when they arrive back in Birmingham, you know, the better their pain has been controlled, the better they did at roll four. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I was, I was struck by the first talk this morning at how utterly that chimed with my experiences. Um, I've had casualties on the ground with horrendous injuries that didn't want, didn't want any pain relief at all. Um, you'd think that was just the adrenaline of battle. Um, they get back to Camp Bastion and they, again, perfectly comfortable. They're surrounded by friends. Everyone's very interested in them. They are... Um, we have a professional volunteer army that... No one likes to say it, but we kind of enjoy what we do. Um, and, uh, and, and young men enjoy their work, typically. Um, and, and they are still on a high and still on a buzz. Um, and then to jump ahead, we've had in huge difficulties getting pain control for these patients in, uh, in, in Birmingham. Um, uncontrollable pain. Um, guys on um, epidurals, PCAs, every, every modern um, technique you can think of, and they're still... They're still either unconscious because they're frankly narcotic or they're, um, or, or they're screaming. Very difficult to control their pain. Um, the, 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 there does seem to be something magic that happens and I don't think it's the low partial pressure of oxygen as they're transferred back. But I suspect it's being separated from their friends, the realisation that for them the war's over and actually the next adventure is not going to be anywhere near as exciting and it's going to be pretty grim and their pain sometime in the first three days starts to become a major issue. Uh, the techniques they've used, um, we often, at the end of an operation for a guy we know is gonna be flown back, 
Um, one of the anaesthetists then obviously often pops in the surgical field and starts laying in um, uh, peripheral nerve catheters. Um, they often have uh, spinals with a flight back. Um, the most significantly injured ones are obviously um, are, uh, intubated for the, for the return home, but there's a lot more recognition that uh, pain relief needs to be sorted. Um, they often have uh, PCAs as well for the conscious casualties as a way of, of giving them back control over their, over their pain relief, but um, it is a big problem, and there'll be multiple, multiple occurrences of, of, as I say, uncontrollable pain, and it's very hard to assign that a purely physical element because it is very difficult to get on top of. Can I, can I just comment, though, that for the benefit of the audience who hasn't seen all the casualties in Birmingham, uh, an awful lot of them do well, but you're absolutely right. That's why I raised the question. So I don't want people to get the idea that everyone no. is suffering back pain, but there are some who are pre who prove very difficult in which to manage that. More questions? Yeah. Mike there, please. While you're getting the mic, um, Joan, is there still a role for plaster of Paris? There is, definitely. Uh, definitely. The, um, there is a, dare I say, generational difference of opinion on the, the role for external fixators. Um, uh, perhaps younger orthopods are more comfortable using the external fixators for, for transfer back. The Americans are a lot more comfortable with it. Um, but actually, simple fractures, there's no problem at all with uh, putting plaster of Paris on this. We still regularly send people back with plaster of Paris. And the advantage is, is you don't violate the... Um, certainly in the initial stages of the Iraq war, there was concern that in not fully sterile conditions... Um, pins were being put into patients and potentially contaminating the, uh, uh, the bone away from the zone of injury. And then that was limiting reconstruction and making infection more likely. That never happens with plaster of Paris. But then some of us wonder that the, uh, the large bullet that's dragged their trousers through their bone has probably done a fair bit of contamination already. But, um, but yeah, we still use plaster of Paris. Sir, there's a question there. Thank you, very, thank you for a wonderful and most humbling address. Could I just ask you a question about the, the Carol Dakin system, which we heard about in laudatory terms yesterday? Am I right in thinking that that uses Dakin's solution, which is sodium hypochlorite? In which case, why did it work? Did it work as well as it's claimed to have done? <laughs> I don't know. I've got to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I think it was mainly used for established osteomyelitis, which is probably a, a separate problem. Than, um, than prophylactic removal of contamination and, and, and potentially colonized but not actually frank infected and established infection. Um, there is a variation of that that's used in some bone infection units who report very good results, but uh, certainly for routine use as prophylactic, I, I, I don't think it has a role. I have a, a theory that, that it was the solution to pollution is dilution. It was volume rather than content that uh, did it. The more interesting question is, bearing in mind the, it's the mechanical effect of fluid that we think dilutes things and just lifts off bacteria and uh, contamination. I can't believe that there isn't some solution that wouldn't augment that mechanical effect with some kind of active chemical effect without damaging tissue. We just don't have it yet. But I'm sure one day uh, that there, there will be something that, um, that will improve, on, uh, improve on, on sodium chloride. Final question, please. I had an experience with USOL. I had osteomyelitis in 1945. In 1984, I was hit by 
this body further and so on. John Kenwright shot that with much of my tibia as he dared, filled it with bone graft from my eye crest, and it was <laughs> irrigated with Usol for ages and ages until eventually it all cleared up and, um, and healed about antibiotics. It hadn't previously responded mm. to antibiotics at all. Um, again, I mean, that's a, uh, I think that speaks that the, the treatment of infection is, 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 is the knife. Um, and that is really the only way to cure a, a musculoskeletal infection, probably once it's deep-seated. Um, but the, the difference with established osteomyelitis is you don't have a very a large field of, of, of damaged and, 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 and wounded tissue that you need to be very wary of. Um, so I think in those circumstances, yeah, there might be much more of a role for, for disinfectants. Yeah, John, final. I'd be very surprised if you're not just as brave as your predecessor with the two MCs and the three mentioned in dispatches. And you, you will know that seven members or fellows of this college have won VCs and incomparable number of other decorations, almost invariably for rescuing the wounded. I'd just like to ask the senior officers, if you were caught trying to rescue the wounded, you'd be court-martialed and fired, wouldn't you? There's, um, I've got one video which I, uh, I look at from time to time. Uh, forgive the indulgent anecdote. There's, um, we're leaving, uh, we're, le we're doing a vehicle patrol uh, in a, uh, what we'd previously called friendly village. And um, it just wasn't that friendly that day. So we were a mixed, uh, there was my, uh, my four by four. Uh, there was two of these stripped down uh, Wimic, the stripped down Land Rovers with the big guns on top. And, uh, and there was two Afghan uh, National Army trucks. I just remembered, I probably should say at the beginning that the views represented here might not necessarily. <laughs> um, and things went right, so we left. And the vehicle behind mine, uh, there was a large bang. The vehicle behind mine uh, ended up on its side. And we spun the vehicles around. The two Wimmick went into a, sort of a flanking position and we drove up to this truck on its side. And I, at the time, uh, a guy called Tomo Sergeant was driving, Sergeant Royal Marines, and I had my digital camera in my hand because I was showing him photos I'd taken of him um, as we were patrolling through the, uh, through the village. And so when about, I, I had it in my hand, I turned on the video camera and started filming through the windscreen. So as we drove up to the, uh, the casualties, um, Again, you're making sort of very split-second assessments of the scene. And the video clip, I can only, I do show it occasionally at talks with the sound turned off because there's that much obscenity uh, going on. Um, there's a couple of things. There's, you can see my thought process. First of all, it takes a long time to get a door open of your vehicle when you're that scared. That's, that's one thing, when you're fumbling and you're, you're getting your weapon into your shoulder. The second thing is, is you can see me open the door and... You can see what I'm thinking, seeing this vehicle on the, uh, on the ground, that it's, it's driven over a mine. So I'm thinking, right, we've now driven into a minefield, and there's guys around. There's just out the corner of my vision, you can see an Afghan National Army soldier being driven, dragged off by one of his colleagues. And you can see, again, flanking one of the other Marines, he's, he's demounted and is, is, and is there waiting to go forward. And, you can, and then he goes forward. And... Even if you weren't there, even if you never met me, you can see the realisation that I realise I'm more scared of looking like a coward than I am of going into that minefield. And that's, that's what it's all about. It's about being, it's the, the fear of looking like a coward in front of your colleagues. 
not bravery. It's just being terrified of people realizing how terrified you are. And you can see the sort of <sighs> jumping out the wagon. There you go. So I'm not sure the relevance of that anecdote. but uh, Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the relevance, having been in a minefield. And I can tell you that the seat of the soul in the male is somewhere in the region of the seminal vesicles. <laughs> the Royal Navy. Thank you. I say it's been a fascinating day and I think the fact that there's so many of us still here till the bitter end just uh, uh, gives uh, you all an idea of what a good presentation we've had and, and the quality of the presentation. Um, we've had a combination of academics and um, uh, historians and those uh, who are surgical and the slide presentations have varied between those that have had uh, I think rather cleverly, text, small text on the side and then pictures juxtaposed with pictures. And then the medics who've given us lots of data and lots of pictures, all quite separate, and different ways of doing it, but very, very effective. I thought, Joe, at the end there, your um, uh, description uh, of how we must continue to learn the lessons of the past was so important, because this has been about uh, things that have happened in the past and things that have happened presently. And I think the two days have reflected uh, how much we learn from the past and how we must remember not to forget those lessons. And I was delighted to hear uh, from uh, Sam that, that this is being recorded as we go along and there will be an audio online for us to access uh, later on. Um, I thought um, uh, the first presentation by Joanna Burke was very interesting, the story of pain, and particularly when she got on to Henry Beecher and for uh, Ailing Adams to get up and say, I worked for him for two years, and actually, I'm not so sure I believed everything he said. Um, and, and that was interesting. I thought Mark Harrison's uh, wounds in, in the World War II was absolutely fascinating. And those of you in the room who uh, will remember uh, Sir Ian Fraser, who was president of the Association of Surgeons, Barry Jackson did a superb um, three uh, edited pieces of stories in the bulletin of him and his experience from the First World War right through the Second. Uh, of particular importance to me was that uh, I was sitting with him at breakfast one day in Harrogate at the Association of Surgeons, and we were talking about his wartime experience, and he'd been in West Africa in the Gold Coast, and uh, he said to me, malaria, I said, very easy, he said, uh, um, the thing that soldiers have to remember is long sleeves, long trousers, and a gin and tonic after six o'clock. And uh, he, was, he was a memorable man. But the important thing is that he was on his way to North Africa with penicillin. And he actually took the very first uh, 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 containments of penicillin to the troops in the desert. And then from then on to the Salerno uh, landing. You've seen in the exhibition outside just how many members of this college, presidents, past presidents, or, uh, pre sorry, presidents of the college and others and members of council who've been involved in various war zones uh, during the years. And one of them, of course, was Reggie Murley, who, uh, when we were talking about the uh, warfare in the, the desert, was somebody who was very much involved in that. We also talked about transfusions, and it might reminded me of an American, actually, called Charles Drew, uh, who did a lot of the early work on, on uh, uh, blood transfusion and preservation of blood 
to be used in the Second World War. And it is important to remember these uh, contributions. Uh, Professor Erica Jones, uh, uh, I thought a splendid uh, talk on the shell shock and those Hearst films, which clearly had influenced medical opinion for many, many years afterwards. Uh, although, as you said, it's the difference between whether we are diagnosing an organic or functional uh, conditioning when we're looking at that mild traumatic brain injury. Now, no lecture or presentation is complete without Professor Jim Ryan because he's been there, done it, and an and exemplar of, of what it is to be in the conflict zone. And I thought his presentation was absolutely fantastic and uh, hearing it uh, from him. And I must confess, I'd always walked away with that figure of only two people who died when they were evacuated to Ajax Bay uh, and Rick Jolly uh, with the many lectures that he gave, but he did make the point that there was a high casualty rate, uh, and then we don't really know about the ones who didn't make it. And I think his presentation was interesting because he posed more questions, really, than, uh, than one would have expected, and I think that we've got to go back and, and look at our own experience of warfare uh, to try and find those answers. Uh, and then we had uh, Julia Midgley with her um, um, evocative, I thought, presentation and, uh, of painting uh, and this juxtaposition between the artist and, and the surgery that's being carried out and I have particular focus on the hands and the importance of surgical hands. I never ever thought of my hands as being musical or artistic in any way, but I suppose to the outsider looking in, surgeons' hands uh, have that ability. And I think the way she uh, made her presentation and, and the exhibition upstairs, which uh, juxtaposes some of her works with the Tonks, uh, I, I thought was uh, very, very moving. And then finally, as I said, Joe, uh, with your presentation, which I very much uh, welcomed and appreciated, I, I was very fortunate in 2011 uh, to be asked to go uh, on a parliamentary trip to Camp Bastion. And um, when we arrived, it was not the tented city, but the concrete one that you showed. And I entirely agree with you. I mean, it, 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 it is so slick. Uh, it is the exemplar. Uh, and the one thing I do remember was going there was to see how there was an American uh, a &E, uh, consultant who was the conductor of the orchestra. There was an insurgent on the table about to be operated on. There were four surgeons, two Yanks, two Brits, uh, and nobody did anything until the conductor of the orchestra, the A&E chap, said, right, we've got everything we need, let's go. Now, that sort of teamwork, which is built up in Afghanistan, Camp Bastion, has to be a benefit to all of us uh, within the NHS, and I'm absolutely confident uh, that that knowledge base will be transferred. Now, I'm going to take the liberty today of um, uh, not doing just a closing speech, but actually do a small presentation. And I'm doing that for personal reasons, uh, because in, when we talk about the, two, the uh, two world wars and the contributions that were made during that war, um, and this week we have all um, been very much involved with Remembrance Day on Tuesday and Remembrance Sunday. And what we think of invariably is the British Tommy. And many people will say that much of that war uh, and the um, uh, concentration of the news media on the war is very much the European war, and in particular the war in the trenches. But of course we know that the war was a global war. It was all over the place. And it was led, on the whole, by 
British generals uh, in the British Army who uh, uh, were doing this. This is a single sergeant's uh, uh, portrait of the, um, the generals of the British Army. And some have satirized this and lampooned it in the past, you know, lions led by donkeys, that sort of thing. And as you go into tea, you probably saw a council portrait with people standing, looking not like, uh, not dissimilar from uh, uh, <laughs> lions led by donkeys. But anyway, um, but very much the picture uh, was uh, of a British uh, operation. But of course, it was a global war. And the war involved all those from the Commonwealth. And in those days, one would, I suppose, have referred to it as the Dominions, South Africa, Australia, uh, Canada, and then the rest of the empire uh, and the British Empire as, as depicted there. But my focus, uh, which I wanted to bring up, was these four countries, uh, the Gambia, uh, Sierra Leone, the Gold Coast as it was, now Ghana, and Nigeria. And the reason I'm picking those up is for the simple reason that we know a lot about the Indian troops, and it was mentioned again today, many of the troops from India who fought in the war, uh, both in the First World War and in the Second World War, uh, and distinguished themselves very well, and the Gurkhas as well. But very little is actually known about the contribution of African troops. And it may well be that the reason for that is because, of course, most of the fighting that they did uh, was in Africa, in Ethiopia, in Somaliland, and, of course, in Burma. And if you remember, the 14th Army were often referred to as the Forgotten Army, and Viscount Slim uh, suffered from that lack of appreciation of their contribution. We know that some 374,000 uh, Africans uh, served in the British Army, uh, 65,000 of whom in Ghana were trained uh, as, and, and called volunteers. Well, they were volunteered by the tribal chiefs who just said, go down there and get trained, and then 30,000 of you will go off to Burma to fight the Japanese, which is, in fact, exactly what happened. And so what I want to do is just tell you a little bit about uh, their contribution seen through the eyes of perhaps one person. And that person uh, uh, is a chap called uh, Seth Anthony. And this is this man here who, at that time, uh, is acting as a sergeant. And now those at the front can read that, and it just says, from the left, Sergeant uh, Seth Anthony of the Royal West African Frontier Force, uh, who took an officer's course at Sandhurst. And you might be slightly surprised at that. Seth Anthony was uh, a uh, student, head, head boy at Achimota School, which is a school uh, and a place where I was born. Um, he was taught by my father uh, he, uh, Latin. And in 1937, he uh, joined the staff of Achimota School. When war broke out, he joined the uh, local defense force and was promoted to sergeant. And then in 1941, he was selected for officer training at Sandhurst. He was commissioned in 1942 as the first African in the British Army ever to be commissioned. He moved to Burma, uh, where he uh, was part of the uh, 52nd uh, um, uh, Division, and he took command himself of the 5th Battalion of the Gold Coast uh, Regiment. In 1945, he uh, received an MBE for his uh, action in the uh, Battle of Mayong and ended the war as a major. 
And I say this because, as you can imagine, in those days, most of the Africans who were uh, uh, in the war zone were commanded by British officers. So this is very much an exception. And after, in, uh, uh, um, after the war, he came back to Ghana, and on independence, he was uh, 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 asked to go to Washington to open the first embassy uh, uh, in, in, in the United States, and he did that in 1957 as a charged affair. And it was an interesting coincidence that in 1963, uh, my father followed him as ambassador uh, to Ghana. So there was a, a connection of one school, one person who made, I think, a huge uh, contribution uh, to the war effort and, and really exemplified the contribution that many of them made, which is not recognized. And I say that advisedly because on Tuesday, um, when the commemorations were being held in uh, London and elsewhere, this obelisk uh, was unveiled in Brixton. Uh, and it was unveiled in memory of the men and women of African descent, descent who served Great Britain in military conflict during World War I and II. And I think it's just an example of how it is important that people uh, who have made these contributions and often the ultimate sacrifice do receive some form of recognition. And I think that it's not an apology, but it is a basic recognition that they all contributed to the war effort and, and all helped to win the war. And so with that, uh, I, I, I'd just like to sort of say that um, Seth Anthony was an interesting man in more ways than one. I never met him. Uh, obviously, my father knew him. But I was in the house one day, as one does, having um, um, uh, dinner uh, and sitting next to Viscount Slim. And he said uh, to me, do you know, uh, I met an interesting chap some years ago, 2008, I went to Accra, and I presented the Burma Star to one major Seth Anthony. Uh, he was 93 at the time, and he finally got his Burma Star, and he died four months later. And I thought that was an amazing, uh, an amazing story. So this brings us a convenient point to uh, wrap up uh, today's uh, meeting. Uh, as I said, I think we've had a fantastic uh, uh, meeting. You all have in front of you these evaluation forms, which I'd be very grateful if you would complete uh, so that the staff can see what you made of it. Uh, as I said before, I think this is such a memorable meeting. It's one that is worthy of recording, and it is going to be recorded audibly. And it may well be uh, uh, considered during the course of the uh, four years of the war. Perhaps we could add this to a other series of presentations that will take place in the coming four years. Uh, I'd like particularly to thank the sponsors of this meeting, the Wellcome Trust, uh, Trust who are a historical uh, uh, organization who take great interest in history. Uh, and and they really made a big difference to this meeting uh, in their support of it and that's much appreciated. And I'd particularly like to thank uh, Sam Arberti and Mick Crumplin for all the work that they have done in bringing this meeting together and making it such a success. And may I ask uh, Haley Kruger to come up uh, because I want to say a very special thank you to her. Where is she? I can't see her. Haley? Could she? Ah, here she comes. Hello, 
And finally, may I end by uh, saying uh, that uh, this brings us to the end of the meeting. Uh, I very much hope you'll have a safe journey home, not caught, get caught up on the Friday afternoon traffic. But if you do have the time, the museum is still open until 5 o'clock. And those of you who haven't had a chance to see the War Art and Surgery Exhibition, I very much recommend it. I popped in at lunchtime, and it certainly is well worth a visit. Thank you all very much.